All right, we are studying about the parables of Jesus, uh, and I started it last week, and I gave you an overview. I'm going to continue with this week, but the ultimate question is, as I will spend the entire semester going through various parables of Jesus, why did Jesus suddenly speak in parables? Jesus was not speaking in parables for the first two years of his ministry. But suddenly, somewhere towards the end of his second year of ministry, a cataclysmic event occurred, which caused the curtain to come down and caused Jesus to begin to speak in parables. Now, we started to study this last week. One of the things that we learned uh, is that the Pharisees, the religious elite, had raised the Sabbath to a degree that was uh, irresponsible. Uh, They had raised the Sabbath to a degree in which they had basically locked down Israel and wouldn't allow anybody to do anything uh, on the Sabbath, which was not God's intention. You know, God created the Sabbath for man. God created the Sabbath so man would have a time of rest and repose and to reflect on the things of God. God did not intend the Sabbath to be effectively as a, a way of being punished. And so what had happened here is that Jesus was being singled out by these Pharisees <clears throat> Uh, as being a violator of the Sabbath. Uh, And what was happening here is Jesus had the temerity to heal people on the Sabbath. Can you imagine? He healed people on the Sabbath. And so as a result of that, they indicted him, and they accused him, and they looked for reasons to waylay his ministry uh, because of that. Um, And so these people were stern and were legalistic in their religious outlook. They were not at all what God had intended his people to be. So what had happened here, as we focused in this, is that in Matthew chapter 12, uh, Jesus was walking from one place to the other, uh, and it was on the Sabbath, and his disciples needed something to eat. And as they walked, they walked by a field. They didn't walk through the field. They walked next to the field. Uh, and they saw there and the grains that could be plucked, and so they picked up some of these grains, and they ate them. They weren't harvesting them. They were just eating them, uh, and the Pharisees contended that that insignificant act of plucking was work and violated the Sabbath, and so they had turned basically the basic need of life, feeding oneself, into a religious taboo. Um, And Jesus showed them the folly, you see, the absolute folly uh, of doing that because God had created the Sabbath for the benefit of humanity. So if God had created the Sabbath for the benefit of humanity, of course humanity could eat on the Sabbath. Of course they could do this. Uh, And also, Jesus knew that people needed to be healed. And so, of course, they could be healed on the the, uh, Sabbath. And so what you see here is this absolute hatred of Jesus. If you turn to Luke chapter 6, you can get an insight here into this issue. Luke 6, verse 6. Actually, you know what? We'll we'll start from the beginning, verse 1. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Notice how inconsequential that was. Individual kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? 
He entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. Let me stop and, and, and bring that to your point. He was being pursued by Saul. David was the anointed king of Israel, but Saul despised him. Saul hated him. Saul wanted to kill him, and so David had to flee. And now he's fleeing, and it's the Sabbath. They have nothing to eat. And so he went into the house of God, and he took the showbread and ate the consecrated bread. And so Jesus is saying that's not a sin. When that's a necessity, God understands it. Uh, and, and don't call that a sin. God looks and sees the need. He also gave that bread to his companions, verse 5. Then Jesus said to him, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, verse 6. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man who was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. I want you to see the nature of evil. All right? I want you to see the nature of evil. They were following him. They were looking for a reason to indict him. These are the religious leaders. These are the religious elite. Why do you think I say religiosity doesn't save anybody? If you're caught up in your denomination or your own particular religious practices, you're going nowhere with God. God has no care whatsoever about your status in your own individual church. Honestly, I'm sorry to tell you this. All he cares about is are you saved? Are you giving your heart to Jesus Christ? Have you bowed before the throne of God? That's all that matters. I don't care what your religious passport says. I don't care that your grandparents founded the church or that your, your mother and father are on the search committee for a pastor. None of that matters. And you understand that. You see it here because here you see the very elite of Israel being closed in their spiritual heart because evil had come in. Evil had come in. And you see, this is what happens when evil comes in. And you see it here. And so the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus so that they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. What, what blows my mind here is the fact that God himself is walking with them. God himself is walking with them. And they were so closed-minded because of evil that they couldn't see it. But Jesus knew what they were thinking. That's the great thing about God, isn't it? He doesn't need to hear you express the words. He knows your heart. And he said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to him, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? <laughs> that says it all, doesn't it? What's lawful? He looked around at them all and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. Verse 11, and this is key to what we're going to talk about today. But they were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Isn't that extraordinary? That in the face of God himself, that in the face of of incredible miracle. Nobody else is doing this. You don't see miracles being uh, committed across Israel. It's only Jesus that's doing this. And there he does healing this withered hand, and they were furious because they had closed their minds. 
and they wanted to destroy Jesus. This is unbelievable to me. And this begins to lay out the case of why Jesus began to speak in parables. Uh, And so clearly, Jesus opposed all these man-made traditions. He challenged their authority uh, to say it, and he claimed supreme authority for himself. And now you see, in a secret conclave that we don't know much about, but we're getting hints about it, they began to talk about what they needed to do to get rid of Jesus. And if you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 11, if you would, please. Let's start with verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. That's Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Well, I would say, yeah, if you saw that, you probably ought to, ought to put your, your faith in Jesus. That wasn't a card trick. Okay? That wasn't a card trick. He actually brought Lazarus out after three days. Yeah, absolutely. And they believed. Many. Notice, not all. <laughs> not all. Many, many put their faith in him. But some, and underline that in your Bible, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. I always liked that. In New Jersey, we call them rats. <laughs> Naples is a little too sophisticated for that language, but in New Jersey, they call them rats. So they, they, they went out and ratted Jesus out, told the Pharisees about it, what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called the meeting of the Sanhedrin. Absolutely, why not? This guy just brought a guy out of a tomb for three days. We better have a meeting. Do you see, do you see what happens in religiosity? Do you see what happens? Do you see, in fact, how churches go wrong, how religious denominations go wrong? They're so paralyzed with myopia in terms of what their own uh, prospects are that they're not interested in the work of God. And you see this here. Uh, And to me, it's just incredible as you understand it. They call a meeting. And here's the meeting. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. Obviously, that's not good. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. There it is, folks. It's all about me, me, me. You understand? Here, these so-called religious people, it's not about God. You don't hear him worried about what God is doing. How is the work of God taking place? We are going to lose our status. The Romans will replace us. We'll be out on the curb. It's all about me. Uh, And you see, that's the nature of how Satan works. Satan does that. Satan focuses it on you instead of God. And that's what happens. Then verse 49, then one of them named Caiaphas, and you know who he is, who was high priest that year, spoke up, you know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Wow, how about that? One man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He sounds like a Christian evangelist. You see how God is? He puts the word of God even at that point into an apostate. He's speaking effectively the word of God. He's giving 
a prophetic word, even though he had no idea what he was saying. And then John makes this comment in verse 51. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. That's right. You see, in that moment was an inspiration of the Holy Spirit that touched his tongue and gave him that prophecy that he himself did not even realize he would say. And you know, from time to time, we know this in the Bible, that God uses various disparate people to utter spiritual truths. We know one spot in the Old Testament, a donkey speaks. A donkey speaks. Uh, as one of the prophets of Baal is trying to go away from where he should have been, and the donkey says, what are you doing? Turn around. Turn around. Don't you see that angel in front of you? And the donkey is speaking. And so that's what happens. Periodically, God will do that. And that's this. Here, Caiaphas is speaking a prophetic word that he does not know on his own. Uh, and, and it says there, uh, he, he did not do this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for the nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. There it is. From that day on, it's over. He must die. We don't care about anything else. It's all about us. It's all about protecting ourselves. Uh, and so they went out and decided uh, to plot to kill Jesus Christ. And so now we're building up, you see. We're building up to the very essence, the very reason of why Jesus uh, decided to speak in parables. And effectively what it is, it is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. All right, you may have heard it referenced at some point in time in some of your churches or some of your Sunday schools, but I'm going to drill down on this to you because this becomes a key theological point, understanding what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. If you would, please turn to Matthew chapter 12, a very important issue, Matthew chapter 12 beginning with verse 22. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? Let me stop you there. The people are saying themselves, could this be the Messiah? Could this be the very promised Messiah? Could this be the son of David? And so you see there, the hearts of the people are being touched. They're being touched. The Holy Spirit has begun to work. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Now, understand why this is so serious. They see the hand of God. They recognize that only by God can this work be done. And yet, despite seeing that and knowing that the people are being drawn to this man because of what God is doing, they now blaspheme the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, by saying it's by devils. It's by Satan. It's not by God. That's a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is going to sp speak about this uh, uh, in a very powerful way. Uh, and so uh, we're going to continue to focus down on this 
And let me just see where I left off. 25, thank you, I appreciate that. And Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, and this is the key, look, obviously God knows your thoughts, all right? And so here's another confirmation that we're dealing with God here. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. By the way, Abraham Lincoln quoted these verses during the Civil War. Uh, will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How can his kingdom stand? Do you understand? Jesus is saying to him, it's an absurd argument. Why would Satan drive out a demon when it would actually divide his own kingdom? That makes no sense. He wouldn't do that. He's looking to propagate his kingdom, not divide it. And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God has come upon you. There it is. You are now looking face to face at the kingdom of God. And instead of embracing the kingdom of God, you've called it the kingdom of Satan. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. He who is not with me is against me. And so I tell you, and here it is, here is the judgment, here is the issue. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. God will forgive everything. But, underline this, the blasphemy against the Spirit, the Spirit and meaning the Holy Spirit, will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. Boom, the the curtain comes down. Jesus, the Savior of the world, the man who came to save and deliver humanity from every possible sin is now pronouncing a judgment that is unforgivable, that will never change in this age or the age to to come, meaning you came face to face with the presence of God. You came face to face with the working of the Holy Spirit, and instead of embracing the Holy Spirit, instead of embracing it, you repudiated him, and you stayed as a stumbling block, keeping others away from this. This is a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Folks, I can't emphasize this enough. I have chills right now uh, in my neck as I speak about this, that people who would come face to face with God would do this. It is the unforgivable sin. And what Jesus is saying here is that you could commit a blasphemy against him and it would be forgiven. You understand? He is separating that. Yes, you could make a blasphemy against the Son of Man, and it would be forgiven. But against the Holy Spirit, it would not be forgiven. Uh, And and he says, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. And anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Wow. Wow. And so now you begin to understand how serious this is. Make a tree good, continuing on. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. 
<clears throat> for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart of the mouth speaks. The good man brings forth good things out of the good things stored up in him. And the evil man brings forth evil things out of the evil stored in him. But I tell you that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned. Oh, Lord, Lord, have mercy on me. Let me reflect, Father, on the words that I use. Let me reflect on the language that I use. Let me reflect on the thoughts that I use. And, Lord, have mercy on me when I come face to face with your power and your glory that I bow in submission and recognize the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen, I believe that's why you folks are here today. You recognize that the Holy Spirit is delivering a Spirit-inspired message. You got up on a Monday morning. There were all kinds of reasons why you didn't have to come. There's all kinds of disease fear out there, and yet you decided that God wanted you to hear this. That, folks, is the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's not me. It's not me. I bow in humility before God, and I ask him to take my tongue and preach the words that he wants me to preach. These are the words of the Holy Spirit, and you can imagine now coming out and hearing this now by someone who can't possibly be anywhere as powerful as the Lord Jesus Christ and being in the presence of Jesus Christ himself, pulling people out of tombs, healing the lame, the dumb, the demon-possessed, and you despise him, and you say he must die. And so here's the deal. There are some sins that cannot be forgiven. The curtain comes down and Jesus pronounces judgment forever. And so now the question becomes, and I'm sure some of you are reflecting on this now, and the question becomes, well, is this a sin? Can this be committed today? Can I sin against the Holy Spirit today? Is that possible? There are some theologians that say no, no, that you would have had to have been in the presence of the Son of God to do that. But I would say that's not true. I would say that the Holy Spirit uh, has replaced Jesus now in this world as the moving force in this world, speaking of Jesus. And I would say that if the Holy Spirit presents himself in such a powerful way and presents the gospel to somebody, and someone comes to understand this is the gospel of God himself. This is the power of God and reveals to that person, this is the power of God. This is the presence of God. And that person refuses to accept it and more than just refuse, then becomes a blasphemer, meaning not only do you refuse, but you denigrate it and you lead others away. And that's what they were doing then. I believe that's a sin against the Holy Spirit. I think that can take place today. And, I, and I, my, I tremble. I tremble for people that put themselves in this. And so, you know, you go out and you speak to people. I know that you do. You try to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know that there are sometimes some people that have no desire at all to hear it. They don't want to hear it. 
All right? And I want you to understand that. Jesus knew that. So Jesus told you, shake the dust off your feet. Don't cast the pearls to the swine. Not everyone is designed to hear the gospel of God. That's God's job, not your job. Your job is to be the messenger. All right? But you see here that you ought to be aware of this, that there comes a time when some people will be so evil, so filled with evil, that even in the face of the Holy Spirit, the powerful working of God, the powerful manifestation of God, that not only will they refuse to accept it, but they will be recalcitrant and deliberate and getting more people to stay away and to stop it. And, and, and so this becomes a critical knowledge. Listen, I want you to know something. <clears throat> the demons recognized that Jesus was the Son of God. The demons themselves. And if you doubt that, turn to Mark chapter 3, verse 10. Well, we'll start with verse 7. Jesus withdrew his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Can you get a sense of what this is like? That every person there that needed to be healed is crowding forward. This is my one chance to be healed. Here is, a per here is someone who will heal me. The hand of God, the power of God, the crowd recognizes it. And so whenever the evil spirits saw him, and they were full of evil spirits, whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. You are the son of God. Can you imagine the evil spirits themselves saying this? Meanwhile, the religious leaders plotting to kill him. But the evil spirits recognize that you are the son of God. Uh, and what does Jesus say? But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Don't tell anybody. Why? Because he didn't want his testimony to come from satanic sources. He wanted his testimony to come from the people of God, not from Satan. Can you imagine? And he shut them down. That's the power of your God. That's the power of Jesus Christ. And so this is extraordinary passage. And this is why from this time forward, Jesus would no longer speak in what we would call a sermonizing methodology, but instead would speak in parables so that these people, the wise and prudent, the self-righteous, on whom the curtain had come down, would not understand what the things of God would be about. And there it is. Jesus says, everything has changed. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. And as I read that, I read that to mean, yes, the sin against the Holy Spirit, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit can be a sin in the age to come. Yes. And so 
Jesus is not saying, and let me make this clear for you, he's not saying that every blasphemy invoking the Holy Spirit's name is unpardonable. In fact, Jesus said that every sin and blasphemy would, would be forgiven except those against the Spirit. And so, yes, if you say something against Jesus Christ and you do it because you're ignorant or don't understand it, God would forgive you. You have to understand that uh, God will forgive all sins. He looks to the nature of your knowledge. If you don't know any better and you're just speaking recklessly, uh, God is not going to judge you the same as someone effectively uh, who is a Pharisee, who was trained in the religious doctrine. Look at 1 John chapter 1. Look at verse 8. If we claim to be without sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. We all sin, every single one of you, in this room, you're born-again Christians. You've given your life to Jesus Christ, yet you still are a sinning machine. That's who you are. Uh, and that will continue until the day we put dirt on you. All right? That's the process of being a, a Christian. And yet, the, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you're convicted. The same things that you did a year ago, now if you do it, you know what I mean. Now you're convicted. You know that you had a certain methodology of speaking or a tone or a word, and, and you would speak like that before. Now if you say those words, you know you're convicted. All you have to do is go out in the golf course, look at the first tee. You understand what I'm saying? You shank one off to the right. Remember where you were two years ago? Words would come out of your mouth that would make somebody's hair fall out. Oh, I didn't know you were a Christian. Oh, yeah, yeah. But now you understand, you wouldn't speak like that. You wouldn't allow words like that to come out of your mouth because you know you're convicted by the Holy Spirit. And you're, you're conscious of what it means to, to be a Christian. Uh, but one sin instantly, instantaneously, and permanently is damnable. It is unforgivable. Uh, and so Jesus speaks eloquently about this singular, malicious, deliberate act of blasphemy, meaning I know what I'm seeing. I know it is the Son of God. I know that God is active, and yet I refuse to acknowledge it. Not only that, I will undercut it because I'm a narcissist, because I'm concerned about my own status. I'm not, I'm not concerned about the power of God. Remember this, they never denied the power of Christ to do miracles. They never did. But here they were actively involved in keeping others to come to faith. What a sin that is. There were crowds there that wanted to come to faith to Jesus. And instead, these so-called religious elites said he does it by the power of Beelzebub. And so they, they, they had a devilish hatred as they undermined the power of God. Their sin was so heinous and breathtaking that it could not be forgiven. And so the one who would effectively judge all mankind for all time 
issues the final judgment. You will never be forgiven. His verdict against them was public and final. They were now sealed forever in the darkness, in the hardness of their heart. They had chosen for themselves, you see. Now, why was this an unpardonable sin? Well, the healing of the demoniac was a work of the Holy Spirit as well as a work of Christ. Uh, all was done through the will of God. The, their contention was an open blasphemy to God. God had moved through the Holy Spirit. He had empowered Christ to do this. This was the work of God to bring thousands of people to salvation. And they blasphemed that work. All right? This is such an important understanding. There would be no hope for them either in this age or the age to come. Rejecting the ultimate truth, they chose a lie. Uh, and so from this day forward, Jesus would absolutely peremptorily conceal the truth for them by the use of parables. That's why Jesus spoke in parables, because judgment had come down. Uh, and, and so you understand it. Uh, and so Jesus makes this point. And, and the very first parable he's going to speak about is the parable of the soils, which we'll get into next week. Uh, and so I want to emphasize, as I try to bring this to some kind of closure for you so that you can remember what I'm saying, is that their sin was that they said that the power to heal, that the power to demonstrate what Jesus was doing, was being done by the power of Satan. Now, there was no basis for this. There was absolutely no basis for this. It was an open, adverse, notorious rebellion against the will of God. Uh, the miracles themselves proved that Jesus was the Messiah. You see it in the crowd as they said, look, could this be the son of David? Could it be? And instead, the religious elite said, no, he's from David. Uh, and so you see the power of this. The blasphemy here represents uh, the, the continuous adverse rejection of God. It is defiance. It is open, notorious uh, defiance. Uh, and, and so you see it. Yes, you can defy Jesus. Yes. Yes, you can defy the Son of Man. But based on your knowledge based on what God has given you, you may be ignorant. You may just not know better. But to misjudge, belittle, and discredit Christ from the vantage point of an inadequate perception was forgivable. You understand what I'm saying? If you don't know better, if the Holy Spirit hasn't delivered to your heart the message of who this is, and you may not know Jesus, you may reject Jesus, that's not a blasphemy. You understand? God is not giving you that, that information. But knowing, you knew, you knew, you knew the scriptures. You knew God's word. You knew the prophecies. Now you stand there face to face with the power of God, bringing dead people out of the tombs, healing the lame and the paralyzed. And yet you say that is the power of Satan? How dare you? How dare you? Uh, I want you to turn to 1 Timothy because I want to draw the distinction here. 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. This is Paul speaking now. Uh, 
even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. What does that mean? I was once a blasphemer. I blasphemed Jesus Christ. I threw Christians in prison. I was involved in the murder of Stephen. I was a blasphemer and a persecutor. But I didn't know any better. I was acting in ignorance. And then God in his mercy brought his Holy Spirit to me and gave me the truth. And I atoned forever with it. I atoned forever. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Jesus Christ. Look, God will forgive every sin. When you sin in ignorance, when you sin because you don't know any better, all right, because the truth of God has not been revealed to you, but when you have been given the gospel of God, when you have been given the truth, when you stand next to the power of God and you see the evidence of the power of God as healing is taking place, as the dead are being raised, as the paralyzed are walking, and yet, yet you say... It's done by the power of Satan. And you keep other people from coming to faith. How dare you? You see the difference? There's a profound difference. A profound difference. And so it's important that you understand that. And so the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit was so much more serious uh, and unforgivable uh, and, and had to be addressed. And you see it here. And it is from this point forward that Jesus will now speak in parables. That's how God works, you see. God doesn't force his truth down your throat, all right? You made a decision. You made a decision, all right? You hardened your heart. And once you harden your heart like that, the curtain closes. And so God would continue to present his word to those who were hungry and thirsty and wanted to know his word. And he would do it through parables. And through the Holy Spirit, he would touch the heart of the humble and the pious, those who had mourned in their spirit, and give them the rational basis to understand the parables. They would understand it because they bowed before God. They were humble before God. But the arrogant, the religious elite, those who were involved in seeking the death of Jesus, the curtain had come down. It's over. The judgment has been rendered. And so you see it. There's nothing more than God could do for these people. They had effectively made their own beds. Look, this is a powerful, powerful story to me. As I've studied this uh, in preparation for the semester work here about, about parables, I really always wondered why Jesus spoke in parables. And when I really came to understand this, it was really powerful to me. As I understand the motivating factor, God did not intend that the wisdom of God, the mystery of the ages, be distributed like pearls before the swine. Let's understand that. The things of God are not distributed like pearls before the swine. These things are so precious. What God has given to you, what, each, what you people know through the Holy Spirit has been that gift that God has given that the prophets in the Old Testament didn't know it. Yes, they preached, but they didn't know about Jesus Christ. 
They didn't know that the Son of God would come to save the world. They had no idea. They didn't understand the term grace. They didn't understand any of that. They didn't understand about the cross and crucifixion. All those mysteries of God have been presented to you through the Holy Spirit. You get it. You understand it. And you do it because of the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what God has given you. And for those that have rejected it, those that have despised it, those who have seen the power of God and instead say, I don't care. I don't care if it's God. All I care about is my own narcissistic position. I reject it, and I'm going to make it so that nobody else will come to God himself. And now we've set the predicate for the study of parables. As we go forward from now, we're going to be able to go each week and delve deeper into parables. As Jesus will speak, and I believe that he'll speak in a way, now that you understand it, in an even more powerful and insightful way. As we go back, as we turn back the pages of time and walk back 2,000 years to be with Christ as he opens up the word of God. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you for these words. I thank you for these people. I thank you for their heart. Lord, let this message resonate in our hearts. Let us leave here today empowered, God, to spread your word through the Holy Spirit, remembering what it means to be sold out to you and remembering what it means when we close our hearts, when we no longer have interest. As we know, Father, that it's not forever, that our time of redemption is not forever, that it is for a finite period of time. Let us be conscious of that. Be with these people. Protect them. Keep them safe. And bring them back safely next week to continue the study of your word as we put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you all.